Amen. All right, well, we're there in Philippians chapter number 1. And of course, uh, last week we started a brand new series called Rejoice. And it is a verse-by-verse study through the book of Philippians. And if you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to check out the sermon on our website or our YouTube channel. And we are going to be studying the book of Philippians together over the next several weeks and really over the summer. And we're going to continue right where we left off in uh, verse number 12. We went through verses 1 through 11 last week. We're going to pick up in verse number 12 this morning. But before we do that, let me just say this. This book, or in this book, or in this letter, the Apostle Paul uh, is writing to the church at Philippi. This is a letter that Paul wrote, the book of what we now call the book of Philippians. And in this book, Paul is teaching us about joy, and he's teaching us about Jesus. And he's actually teaching us about the joy that can be found in Jesus. Paul, however, I want you to know that actually has many reasons to be down. Sometimes people talk to you about joy and happiness and the automatic response is, well, if you were going through what I was going through, if you lived the circumstances that I lived. I want you to know that when Paul tells us about joy and really commands us to rejoice, he's not on a tropical island somewhere relaxing. He's uh, in a prison cell. And more than that, Paul has many reasons, many legitimate reasons, many valid reasons to be down and discouraged uh, because of the things that have happened unto him. In fact, that's, what, that's where we begin this morning, Philippians 1 and verse 12. Notice what Paul says. He says, but I would, ye should understand, brethren. I want you to notice this phrase. He says that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. I want you to notice the Apostle Paul here references the fact that there are some things that have happened unto him. In fact, there are some things that the church at Philippi would have heard about that would cause them to think, Paul, are you serious when you're teaching us about joy and how to rejoice? And I want to begin this morning by way of introduction of just breaking down for you the things that happened unto Paul. Because when he makes that statement that the things which happened unto me, that's not just a shallow statement. He's in his mind, in his, in his mind's eye, he's going back to some very recent events and things that have, have happened uh, uh, to Paul that would cause anyone to be discouraged or down or depressed. I thought about having you go to Acts and showing you all of these, but I thought that would take too long. I've got too much to cover. So what I've done is I've just written out a list of things and you can just listen to this. I'll give you the references if you want to jot them down. And of course, I always encourage you to take notes on the back of your course of the week. There's a place for you to write down some notes. But let me just, just for you to get the right context of the things which happened unto me. What are the things that happened unto Paul? Number one, first of all, In Jerusalem, the Jews stirred up all the people against Paul and laid hands on him. And the Bible says, drew him out of the temple as they went about to kill him. Acts 21, 27 through 31. Then, after Paul was rescued from that mob by the chief captain of the Roman soldiers, the chief captain himself commanded Paul to be examined by scourging which Paul only avoided by pulling his Roman citizen card, Acts 21, 31 through 33, and 22, 24 through 25. After that, Paul is brought to be heard before the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and after his testimony, another riot breaks out, during which Paul would have, the Bible says, been pulled in pieces of them, Acts 23, 9 through 10. Then, Certain Jews, which were more than 40, decided to band together under a curse, vowing to not eat nor drink till they had killed Paul, Acts 23, 12-14. As a result, the chief captain has to send Paul to Caesarea Philippi by a guard of two centurions, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen in the middle of the night to avoid Paul being killed, Acts 23, 23-24. Once in Caesarea Philippi, 
Paul is brought before Felix, but is not given a fair hearing because Felix, the Bible says, hoped also that money should have been given him of Paul, Acts 24, 26. After two years, Portius Festus replaces Felix and decides to leave Paul bound to show the Jews a pleasure, Acts 24, 27. Finally, Paul is heard by King Agrippa. And when that leads to yet another dead end, Paul decides to take his chances and appeals unto Caesar and is sent to Rome, Acts 25, 22, 26, and 32, uh, in verse 32. On his way to Rome, Paul is shipwrecked, and the soldiers' counsel was to kill him because he was a prisoner, but Paul was rescued by the centurion willing to save Paul, Acts 27, 42 through 43. After the shipwreck, Paul is stranded on an island and is bitten by a venomous viper, Acts 28, 3-4. He survives that, makes it to Rome, and when Paul finally makes it to Rome, he dwelt two whole years in his own hired house under the house arrest, and we're told, history tells us, chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day, seven days a week, Acts 28, 30-31. So when Paul says, the things that have happened unto me, there are some things that have happened unto Paul. There are, I mean, this, this list is enough to make anybody quit. This list is enough to make anybody uh, be down in the dumps. Yet Paul, with all that, with all that, Paul continues to encourage the Philippians to have joy and to exercise what he refers to as rejoicing or to rejoice. In fact, if you remember when we started this series, I told you uh, last week, and I want to remind you again, that that's the theme of this book. The theme of this book is to have joy or to rejoice. In fact, the, 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 the book is only four chapters long, yet the word rejoice appears ten times through uh, this book. You're there in Philippians 1. Look down at verse number 18. Let me just highlight some of these for you. Philippians 1.18, the Bible says, Paul says, What then, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and will rejoice. Notice chapter 2 and verse 16. If you flip, flip over to chapter 2 and verse 16, holding forth the word of life, notice what he says, that I may Rejoice in the day of Christ, that I have not run in vain, neither labored in vain. Yea, and if I be offered upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, notice what he says, I joy and rejoice with you all. Look at verse 18. For the same cause also do ye joy and rejoice with me. Look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Notice Philippians chapter 4 and verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. And Paul, after all those things that had happened unto him, sitting in a prison cell, chained to a Roman soldier, writes to the church at Philippi, and he says, rejoice. He says, rejoice. Now you say, well, what does that mean and what does that tell us about Paul? It means three things about Paul, really. Number one, it could mean that Paul is just crazy. I mean, he's been beaten, we know that. He's been stoned, he's been shipwrecked, he's been, has had all sorts of things, and Paul might have just had his head bashed in one too many times. And maybe the guy is insane. Maybe he's just crazy. Maybe we're looking at Paul and thinking, Paul, uh, there's no reason to rejoice. After everything that's happened to you, why would you rejoice? It could mean that Paul is crazy. The other option is this, that Paul is faking. That Paul is just pretending. Because this is what a spiritual leader is supposed to do, right? When you're going through adversity, you're supposed to smile and, and encourage others. And maybe Paul is faking. Or, or so it could mean that he's crazy. It could mean that he's faking. Or it could mean, and this is what I tend to believe, that Paul is on to something. That Paul has learned something. That Paul has learned something about joy and rejoicing. That is the opposite of what is intuitive in our culture and in our world. And it is this. We think that our joy and our contentment is based off our circumstances. And Paul has learned there's a different source to joy. So in this passage, we see how Paul thinks. We see 
his mindset. We see how he overcomes adversity and chooses to have joy and to rejoice even with all sorts of problems around him. So this morning I want to give you three thoughts in regards to Paul's mindset and we see it in this passage as we will break it down verses 12 through 18. I want you to notice several things about the Apostle Paul. The first one is this. I want you to notice Paul's passion. Paul's passion. If you notice in first in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12 he says, but I would ye should understand brethren that the things which have happened unto me and again being assaulted, being imprisoned, not given a fair hearing, bitten by a venomous snake, all these things, have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of, and I want you to notice these two words, the gospel. The Apostle Paul had a passion of his life, and it could be summed up in these two words, the gospel. The theme of the book of Philippians is rejoice. The theme of the life of the Apostle Paul is the gospel. In fact, I want you to notice if you look up at verse number 5 of Philippians chapter 1, he says, for your fellowship in, notice the words, the gospel, from the first day until now. Look at verse number 7, same chapter. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in my defense and confirmation of, notice the words, the gospel. Ye all are partakers of my grace. Look at verse 17 of chapter 1. But the other of love, knowing that I am set for a defense of, notice the words, the gospel. Look at Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. He says, only let your conversation be as it becometh, notice the words, the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affair, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together, don't miss it, for the faith of the gospel. I want you to know that Paul had a passion. There was a master passion in his life, and it was the gospel. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read this for you. Romans 1.15 says this, so as much as in me is, this is what Paul said. He said, so as much as in me is, he says, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. Paul said, as much as in me is, he says, with every ounce of energy, with everything I've got, he said, I am ready to preach the gospel. See, Paul had this passion of his life, and it was the gospel. Over and over and over through his writings, he talks about the gospel, and, and, and he preaches about the gospel. He had this, this, this passion of uh, the gospel. You ask Paul, Paul, what are you doing? He'd say, the gospel. You ask Paul, Paul, what are you thinking about? He'd say, the gospel. You say, Paul, what are you interested in? He'd say, the gospel. You ask Paul, Paul, what do you want for lunch? He'd say, the gospel. Uh, his passion was the gospel. And by the way, Paul's passion was also God's passion, the gospel. We all have a passion. We all have a master passion. Something that drives us. See, Paul, if you study the life of Paul, you'll learn that Paul was what we would call a type A personality. Highly driven, highly effective, highly goal-oriented. If Paul wanted to, he could have been the uh, greatest CEO of whatever company. He could have been an emperor uh, for, for whatever it's worth. But Paul had given his life to the gospel. His passion was the gospel. See, we all have a passion. For some people, their passion is money. And they give their lives and they drive their energy towards gaining money. For other people, their passion is pleasure. For other people, their passion is education. For other people, their passion is success. For other people, their passion is status. For other people, their passion is possessions. But for Paul, his passion was the gospel. What he cared about was the gospel and getting the gospel out. And we need to understand, if you say, well, what does this have to do with rejoicing? Before you can understand Paul's problems and Paul's perspective, you have to understand Paul's passion. What was it? The gospel. William Booth was a man that lived in the 1800s, and he was the founder of the Salvation Army. Now, the Salvation Army and what the Salvation Army is today and what it was when it was founded in the 1800s are are very different things. When the Salvation Army was founded in the 1800s, originally it was an organization that would train evangelists to go out into the streets and preach the gospel face-to-face to the poor and destitute. It was really what we would call a soul-winning ministry. 
the Salvation Army. Here's what William Booth said. He said, some men's passion is for gold. Some men's passion is for art. Some men's passion is for fame. My passion is for souls. Paul had a passion uh, that was similar to that of William Booth. If Paul would have met William Booth, he would have gave him a high five and said, the gospel. He was interested in the gospel. He was interested in getting people saved. He was interested in preaching to uh, the lost and reaching people. That was the passion of Paul. That is the passion of Christ. That is the passion of God. And by the way, that ought to be your passion. That ought to be my passion. So I want you to notice that we, we, we begin this morning by seeing Paul's passion. What was it? The gospel. But then I'd like you to notice secondly this morning, not only do we see Paul's passion, but we see Paul's problems. Paul had two problems that he talks about in this passage. And the first one was his position. What we mean by that is where Paul found himself. He found himself in prison. Notice verse 13. He says, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace and in all other places. Paul said, my bonds are manifest. He said, you know, you've heard the rumors have spread. The word has been uh, given out that I have a major problem. My problem is my position. You say, what's the problem with your position? It is that he was in prison. His problem was that he was captured. He felt tied up and bound, literally was bound by a prison. Here's what's interesting, is that many people today are unhappy because they feel imprisoned by their own lives. Paul was literally physically imprisoned. But I believe that this morning, in this group of people, there are people who may feel imprisoned by their lives. Let me read to you a little excerpt from an article uh, that came out uh, from Psychology Today. It's entitled, Imprisoned by Your Life. Here's what it says. It says, many people feel trapped by aspects of their life. Trapped in a difficult relationship, at an unfulfilling job, or generally unhappy with their life despite their basic needs being met. The article goes on to say, people are unhappy because they view their lives as prisons. People get married, have children buy a home and cars, furniture, vacations, and whatever else they have been programmed to associate with happiness and success. After the novelty wears off and their new goal is defined, uh, success has been relocated even further up the scale. They feel like prisoners in their own life. I want you to notice and understand that the Apostle Paul had a problem, and it was the fact that he was in prison. And maybe you're here this morning, and you feel like your life is a prison. Maybe you feel imprisoned in a marriage that you love but is difficult, in a marriage that you are trying to make work but is not working. Maybe you feel imprisoned by children that are going wayward, no matter what you do and how much you pray and what you try. Maybe you feel in prison because your job situation, your career situation is just not working and uh, there's just not really somewhere to go or something else to do. See, there are people who often feel this problem and they'll say, I can't be happy because I feel imprisoned. Maybe you're reading this sermon right now as a transcription literally from a prison cell. Our church has a ministry where we send transcribed sermons every week to prisoners all over this country. And maybe right now you're reading a transcription literally from a prison cell and you feel imprisoned. I want you to notice that the Apostle Paul felt imprisoned as well. Paul had a second problem. His first problem was his position. His second problem was his opposition. Notice verse 14. And many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bonds are much more bold to speak the word without fear. I want you to notice what Paul says. He says some. He says some. Now when he says some there, he's referring to some of the brethren in the Lord. In verse 14, he says, and many of the brethren in the Lord. I want you to notice that the Apostle Paul in verse 15 is going to tell us about some opposition, but he's not talking about the enemies of the Lord or the enemies of the cross. Paul does that and he talks about that in other books and other places. But Paul here is talking about opposition coming from his brothers in Christ. He says, some indeed preach Christ. 
Notice, he says there are some out there who preach Christ. They're preaching Christ, and they're not preaching the false gospel. He's not rebuking them for preaching the false gospel, but he is uh, makes a statement in regards to their motivation to preach the gospel. He says some indeed preach Christ. They do it even of envy. Envy is what you and I today would call jealousy. And jealousy is a different word in the Bible, and I won't take the time to explain that. But he says, there are some brothers and sisters out there, they're preaching the gospel, they're preaching Christ, but they're not doing it out of, out of uh, good motivation, they're doing it because of envy. You say, why would they be envious of Paul? Because Paul was the big man on campus. Paul was the most successful uh, Christian leader of his day. Paul was the most successful Christian leader uh, other than the Lord Jesus Christ of all time. And, and, and some people looked at Paul and they said, well, I want to get invited to the same conferences Paul gets invited to, and I want to be asked to preach like Paul gets to preach, and I want to be uh, uh, revered like Paul is revered, and honored like Paul is revered. And Paul says, hey, there are some who indeed preach Christ, but they don't do it because their passion is the gospel. He says they do it even of envy. He says, and others of strife. He said, some people, they don't get into the ministry because they want to reach people. They get into the ministry because they want to fight with people. Now, fighting is part of the ministry. The Bible says we are to earnestly contend for the faith. But he said, some people are just motivated. They're motivated by envy and strife. He says, and some of goodwill. Then in verse 16, he says this, the one. Now, the one there is referring to the former. The, the, the one that does it of envy and strife. He says, the one preach Christ of contention, fighting. You say, nobody does that. Oh, really? Explain to me why, you know, a church can have a protest and, and, and the attendance goes up and people get all fired up and they all want to go soul winning when a church got protested or a church got blown up. or a church, But then, you know, once that kind of fades out a little bit, people go back to their normal lazy way. You say, what is that? It's because some people, they just want to preach the gospel of contention. Not sincerely. Not genuinely. And I want you to notice what Paul said. Paul said, they're preaching out of envy and strife. They're preaching out of contention, not sincerely. That's bad enough. But then he says this. He says, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. Now, would you agree that Paul has already gone through a lot? I mean, he's been shipwrecked. He's been stranded on an island. He's been beaten. He's had riots. He's had people vow to take his life. And Paul says, after all that, now that I'm in prison, there are some brethren out there who are continuing in the ministry, supposing to add affliction to my bond. He says, they are malicious and they are petty. They're actually trying to make my situation worse. And by the way, let me just say this. For those of you who don't like all the drama, people always talk about the drama. I don't like all the drama in Christianity. Let me, let me just let you in on a little secret. Christians have been bickering and fighting with each other since the first century. People are, oh, I don't like the new IFP. There's so much drama. Well, you wouldn't like Paul either. There's a lot of drama there too. You say, well, are you saying it's a good thing? I'm not saying it's a good thing. I'm just telling you it's part of the game. We're, we're, we're Christians and we love the Lord, but you know what? We're human beings and people are going to fight and bicker and, and do those things. Christians have been bickering with, you, with each other since the first century. How do you explain Philippians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16? Some indeed preach Christ, even of envy and strife, the, uh, uh, and some of goodwill. The one preach Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bond. Uh, Christians have been fighting uh, each other. I'm, I'm not talking about fighting false prophets. I, Christians have been fighting false prophets at the beginning as well. But you know, Christians have been fighting each other. <laughs> Bickering with each other. Yeah. Writing Facebook posts about each other. Yeah. Since the first century. There have always been those who are envious and attack others who are succeeding. 
There have always been believers who are malicious and take advantage of the setbacks of others. See, here's what's happening. Paul has just been tearing it up because he's Mr. Type A personality. He's a hard worker. By the way, he wasn't married. He didn't have kids. I'm sure that helped a little bit with his uh, ability to be able to just go out and do things. You know, and Paul himself says that. But he's out there just setting the world on fire. And then there's people looking at him and they're jealous. They're envious uh, and, and they want to have have what Paul has, and then Paul gets thrown into prison, and they say, good. Maybe, instead of them saying, why don't I go out and try to do as much as Paul, they said, let's just try to stop Paul. Oh, he got thrown in prison? Praise the Lord. Did I say that out loud? You said Christians wouldn't, wouldn't uh, 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 you know, take uh, a joy in the setback of another Christian. Oh, really? So Christians wouldn't be happy and make statements in a positive way when a church is preaching the gospel gets protested? You've never seen that? I've seen that. Other Christians wouldn't rejoice when our YouTube channels get shut down? People, you haven't seen that? Because I've seen that. Saved, believing Christians make positive statements when Pastor Mejia's church building got blown up by the LGBTQ mafia. Well, he deserved that. He had that coming to him. You know, some preach Christ of contention, not sincerely supposing to add affliction to my bonds. See, Paul had a passion. It was the gospel. But Paul also had a couple of problems. It was his position. He felt imprisoned. In fact, he didn't feel imprisoned. He was imprisoned. And he had another problem. It was his opposition. It was other Christian brethren kicking him while he was down. It was other Christian brethren rejoicing at his setbacks. Yet Paul, yet Paul learned how to genuinely rejoice. You say, well, how could you rejoice in that? How could you rejoice through that? Well, I'd like you to notice, first of all, we saw Paul's passion. Secondly, we saw Paul's problems. I'd like you to notice, thirdly this morning, and this is where we'll spend the majority of the sermon, the rest of the sermon, like you notice Paul's perspective. Paul had a different way of looking at things. See, Paul looked at a situation that you might look at and say, we're discouraged, and he said, I'm rejoicing. Paul had a different way of looking at things. Notice verse number 12 again. He says, but I would ye should understand. The words ye should or I would ye should... Paul's saying, I want you to understand. He said, Paul says, I know what it looks like. Paul says, I know what it looks like, but I don't think you're seeing it the way I'm seeing it. I don't think you're understanding it the way I'm understanding it. I don't think you're perceiving it the way I'm perceiving it. He says, but I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Paul says, see, you look at my problems, and and I see my problems, but when I see my problems through the lens of my passion, what I realize is that my problems have actually furthered my passion. He says, all these things that have happened unto me, they've actually happened unto the furtherance. He says, they've fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. So what do you mean, Paul? Well, notice what he says in verse 13. He says, so that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace. See, Paul understood something. Paul understood that his position in prison, because of Paul's position in prison, the gospel had been furthered in the palace of Rome. See, Paul had been given an opportunity to preach somewhere he would have never had access to. He would have never had access to the, uh, uh, the palace of the Roman Empire. He would have never had access to the people working in the palace. He would have never had access to preach the gospel to the king, the emperor, to preach the gospel to the household of Caesar. But Paul says, hey, let me explain something to you. Yes, I've got some problems. I'm in prison. And as a 
result of being in this house arrest, as a result of being in this hired house, they've chained to me. Now, the history tells us they would take eight-hour shifts and uh, a different guard would be chained to Paul for eight hours. Paul would be uh, chained 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But guards, different guards would take shifts and be chained to Paul for eight hours. And Paul says, you know, uh, they chained me to a guard for eight hours. And if you know Paul's passion, and if you know Paul's passion, Amen. you want breakfast, Paul? Let me talk to you about the gospel. Amen. Nice weather we have. Yep. Let me talk to you about the gospel. I mean, every time a new guard came in, hey, let me ask you a question. What is it, Paul? Do you know if you were to die today, if you're on your way to heaven? Hey, Paul's passion was the gospel. They, they, they said, Paul, you, you're held captive. He says, I'm not held captive. They're held captive. Talk about a captive audience. The gospel, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. And as a result, what happened? Some of these soldiers got saved. I mean, the guards of the emperor, the people connected in the palace, Paul says, he says, but I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which have happened unto me have fallen now rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. You say, Paul, what do you mean? He says, by my position in prison, the gospel has been furthered in the palace of Rome. So that my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace. By the way, Paul was a pretty good soul winner. He was a pretty effective soul winner. In fact, at the end of the book of Philippians, if you flip over to chapter 4 and verse 22, at the end of the book of Philippians, Paul kind of gives this tongue-in-cheek statement, this wink-wink statement. He says to the Philippians, hey, I salute you. Then he says this in verse 22, all the saints salute you, chiefly they that are of Caesar's household. Paul said, let me tell you something. Everybody I got saved that lives in Caesar's household, they salute you. Paul said, these people that I would have never had access to, these people that I would have never had the opportunity to give the gospel to in Caesar's household, they got saved. Why? Because I'm in prison. The things that have happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. See, Paul said that that, that my bonds in Christ are manifested in all the palace. He says, all the saints salute you chiefly. They that are of Caesar's household salute you. Keep your place there in Philippians. Go up into the book of Acts, if you would. Acts chapter 9. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter number 9. Do me a favor. When you get to Acts, keep your place there. Put a ribbon there, a bookmark. We're going to leave it, and we're going to come back to it. Acts chapter 9, and look at verse number 15. See, when Paul, and Acts 9, we have Paul when he first got saved or when he's about to get saved. And I want you to notice what God tells us his plan for Paul was. Acts 9, 15. But the Lord said unto him, now the him that was referring to Ananias, who the Lord is getting Ananias to go preach the gospel uh, and, and convert Paul. He says, go thy way for he, the he there is referring to Paul, he is a chosen vessel unto me. God said, the Lord said, I have chosen Paul. He's a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings. You say, how did Paul stand before king? Well, I'll tell you how he stood before King Agrippa. I'll tell you how he stood before uh, Festus. I'll tell you how he stood before Felix. I'll tell you how he stood before Caesar and got access to Caesar's household by being in prison. He says that he should bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how great things he must suffer. Those are the things which happened unto me. He said, for my namesake. Paul says, they've happened unto me unto the furtherance of the gospel. So see, Paul understood that by his position in prison, the gospel had been furthered in the palace of Rome. That's not it, though. Keep your place there in Acts. Go back to Philippians chapter 1. Paul also understood in Acts 1 and verse 13, the Bible says this, so that by my bonds in Christ are manifest in all the palace, but then he says this, and in all other places. Paul not only understood that his position in prison had gotten the gospel to be further in the palace of Rome, but Paul also understood that his position in prison had gotten the gospel to be further to the people of Rome. Paul 
had this desire to go to Rome. I read it to you from Romans where he said, as, as much as in me is, he said, I am ready to preach the gospel unto you that are in Rome. Paul wanted to get to Rome, had never been able to get to Rome, but now, because of his imprisonment, he's in Rome. Now, what do you think Paul did while he was in prison in Rome? Go to Acts 28. Acts 28. Well, if you understand the passion of the Apostle Paul, you might understand what he did. You say, well, he preached the gospel to the Roman soldiers and and got his message into Caesar's household. Yes, but you know, he did other things. Acts 28, look at verse 30. Acts 28, verse 30. Here we have Paul in Rome. Paul in Rome. Acts 28, verse 30, and Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house. He's under house arrest and received, notice, and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. You say, what was Paul doing? He's having Bible studies at the expense of the Roman Empire. Was Paul getting a full-time evangelist? Yeah, he was getting paid by Rome. To preach the gospel in Caesar's household and to the Roman Empire. Paul understood that his position in prison had furthered the gospel, not only in the palace of Rome, but also with the people of Rome. By the way, let me say this. During this time, Paul wrote what we refer to as the prison epistles. During this time, while Paul was in prison in Rome, the Holy Spirit of God spake through Paul, and he penned down the book of Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. The interesting thing is that the longest period of Paul's incarceration was the greatest period of Paul's impact. Paul understood that his prison position, his present position, had furthered the gospel in the palace of Rome had furthered the gospel with the people of Rome. But I want you to notice, thirdly, Paul's present prison position had furthered the gospel with the preachers in Rome. Look at verse 14. Philippians chapter 1, verse 14. And many of the brethren in the Lord, waxing confident by my bonds, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul said, I went around, Paul said, I went around trying to motivate Christians, trying to motivate Christians for them to preach the gospel. I was able to motivate some and not motivate others. And sometimes I could motivate some for a while, but I couldn't motivate some for all the time. But he said, you know what happened when I got put in prison? You know what happened when I got put in prison? He said, many of the brethren in the Lord waxing confident by my bond are much more bold to speak the word. He said, some people, some people got motivated because I went to prison. They thought, well, if Paul can do this in prison, surely I can do this out here. If Paul can preach the gospel in prison, surely I can preach the gospel in freedom. Paul's present prison position furthered the gospel not only in the palace of Rome, not only with the people of Rome, but it furthered the gospel with the preachers of Rome. He motivated others. You say, Paul, why aren't you depressed? You know, if you ask the question, how can you rejoice in your prison, Paul? He answers this. When your perspective is that your problem furthers God's passion, you can rejoice. See, Paul had a different way of looking at his prison. Paul did not look at his prison as a problem. He looked at prison as an opportunity. He said, how, how can you rejoice in prison? Well, you would, re- you would be down and, and out. You would be depressed and discouraged if you were in prison and you thought, this isn't fair, this isn't right, I don't deserve this. But Paul said, I don't see prison as a problem. I see prison as an opportunity. I'm getting access to Caesar's household. I'm motivating other Christians. I'm holding Bible studies on the dime of the Roman Empire. Paul was able to rejoice when he saw his problems through the lens of his passion and he saw it as an opportunity. The reason you're always down about your prison, the reason you're always down about your problems is because you're looking at it wrong. Sometimes God puts problems in your life as an opportunity. 
You say, uh, uh, you know, I can see that for Paul. How, how could that be for other Christians? Okay, how about a lady by the name of Fanny Crosby? You may recognize her name. She's written many of the hymns in your hymn book, in our hymn book. When Fanny Crosby was six weeks old, she caught a cold, but their town, their town doctor was unavailable, so they sought the advice from a nearby country doctor who unwittingly prescribed a hot mustard poultice for her inflamed eyes. When she started crying, the doctor said something to the effect that it was working and they should leave it on for the prescribed time. The result was total blindness. When it became known throughout the small town that the man, uh, the, the man left and no one ever heard from him again. Concerning this tragedy, Fanny Crosby later wrote, later wrote, In more than 85 years, I have not for a moment felt a spark of resentment against him. For I have always believed from my youth up that the good Lord in his infinite mercy by this means consecrated me to the work that I am still permitted to do. Fanny Crosby wrote more than 9,000 hymns, including Rescue the Perishing, Blessed Assurance, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior, and All the Way My Savior Leads Me. She used her testimony and her writing to encourage multitudes of people unto this day. By the way, Fanny Crosby, who had her sight stolen by an incompetent doctor, is the one who wrote these words in the song, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. She said, she wrote this, All the way my Savior leads me, what have I to ask beside? Can I doubt His faithful mercies, who through life has been my guide? Heavenly peace, divinest comfort, heir by faith and all to dwell. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. For I know whatever befall me, Jesus doeth all things well. How about Amy Carmichael? Amy was a young girl that was not pleased with her appearance. She was envious of the girls around her who had blue eyes, and she had brown eyes, which she found very unattractive. While quite young, she remembered her mother's teaching that if she asked God for anything, he would surely grant her her requests. So having a spiritual stirring at a young age, Amy proceeded to ask God to change her eye color, not realizing that sometimes his answer is no. Much to her disappointment, they remained brown. But as the years unfolded, Amy came to realize the wisdom of God's denial of her request. While serving as a missionary uh, in India, her brown eyes became an asset to her ministry. Amy Carmichael would dress up like an Indian peasant girl and would put on the garb of an Indian girl, which would cover her entire body, including her face, except for her eyes. Her blue eyes would have surely, if she had blue eyes, they would have surely had given her away. But since she had brown eyes, she looked like any other Indian girl and was able to walk into the temples and literally rescue the lives of hundreds and maybe thousands of girls that had been given over as prostitutes for the temple in India and were going to be given as human sacrifices. Here's all I'm telling you. Sometimes you need to see your prison as an opportunity. How about J.C. Penney? J.C. Penney was a Christian businessman who started a highly successful retail store by the same name. He was a very active Christian. In my office, I have a book written by Jesse Penny called The Lines of a Layman. Very godly man, as far as I can tell. I've read the book and has a lot of principles. His thought was that God will help you in business if you practice the golden rule. You treat people the way you'd like to be treated. He wanted, however, to do more for the cause of Christ, but felt trapped by his success in business. He felt that too many people were relying on him and his responsibilities for him to be able to do something else. So he decided to turn his prison into his opportunity. It is sad that he decided. He understood that God had commanded him to give 10% of his income to God and live off of 90%. But since he had been so successful, J.C. Penney decided that he would live off of 10% of his income and give 90% to the work of God. And he turned his prison into an opportunity. You know why you can't rejoice during opposition? is because instead of seeing opportunity, you're seeing opposition. Instead of seeing opportunity, you're seeing prison cells. 
See, sometimes God allows adversity in our lives. Sometimes God allows problems into our lives. Sometimes God allows things to come into our lives. And some Christians respond with mourning and with anger and with bitterness. And others, like Paul, respond with rejoicing and with joy. You say, Paul, are you crazy? Paul, are you faking it? Paul, how can you rejoice? And Paul would say, my problem is my opportunity to serve God. So Paul saw his prison as his opportunity. I want you to notice how Paul saw his second problem. Go back to Philippians 1, look at verse 17. He says, but the other of love. Remember, he talked to us about these disingenuine preachers. These preachers who preach for contention out of envy and strife. He, he talked about these preachers that have the wrong motives. In fact, they're trying to add to his affliction, Paul would say. But notice what he says. He says, but, he says, but, he says, but, there are others, but the other of love, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. Then he says this in verse 18. He says, what then? What then? Here's how you and I would say that today. We'd say this, so what? You know, what then? I know there are some people out there who are preaching the gospel and they're doing it for the wrong reasons. I know there are people out there who are preaching the gospel just because they're trying to compete with me and trying to, uh, 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 they're envious of me and they're trying to outdo me. I, I know there are people out there who are, are preaching the gospel and they're trying to kick me while I'm down and, 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 and talk smack about me while I'm in prison. And I, I, I know that there are people out there that are malicious. I'm not talking about unsaved people. He, he says, uh, not false prophets, uh, people that are preaching the gospel, but they don't like me. He said, and I know that there are others who are preaching of love. And then Paul kind of shrugs his shoulder and he says, so what? What then? He says, notwithstanding every way, whether in pretense, pretense means to be pretending to not do it for the right reason, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. He says, and I therein do rejoice, yea, and I will rejoice. You say, Paul, what are you talking about? Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, my passion is the gospel. My passion is to get the gospel out. My passion is that people would get saved. And here's what Paul said. Paul said, I don't care why people preach the gospel. He said, I don't care why they're preaching the gospel. By the way, let me tell you something. Pastor, this is not Paul speaking. Pastor Amen is speaking here, and I hope you take this the right way. I'm not saying this in an arrogant way. You know that my goal is to motivate as many of our church people to preach the gospel, and I don't care why you preach the gospel. If I, if I preach sermons about, you know, people dying and going to hell and tug at your heartstrings and motivate you to preach the gospel, amen. If I preach positive sermons about the fact that we can go and, 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 and find disciples and invest in people and reproduce ourselves, then so be it. If you go and preach the gospel because it's a cool thing to do at Verity Baptist Church and it's what all the cool kids are doing, I therein do rejoice. Amen. I don't care why people preach the gospel. Paul says, I don't care why people preach the gospel. He said, they're preaching it for the wrong reason. Some people are preaching it for the right reason. He says, what then? Notwithstanding in every way, wherein in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice. He says, yea, and I will rejoice. Amen. He said, what, 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 did, uh, what, what was Paul's stand? You know what Paul's stands was? Paul's stands was, you go after those corrupting the gospel. You don't have to turn there. Galatians 1.18. This is what he wrote to the church in Galatia. He said, But though we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you, that which uh, we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. See, Paul said, Paul understood. He said, If somebody's preaching the false gospel, let's go after them. And he says, Well, what if, what if somebody's preaching the true gospel but for the wrong reason? Paul says, I rejoice. By the way, Jesus said something similar. Mark chapter 9, if you want to turn there real quickly. Mark 9, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Mark 9, Matthew, Mark. Mark 9, 38. The Bible says this, And John answered him, saying, Mark 9, 38. Mark 9, 38. And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us. And we forbade him because he followeth not us. But Jesus said, forbid him not. 
For there is no man which shall be, which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. Say, Pastor, what, what, what do we do with these churches that they don't like you and they don't like Pastor Anderson and they don't like the new IFB and, but they're out there and they're preaching the gospel. You know, if somebody's corrupting the gospel, then we go after them. We expose them. We earnestly contend for the truth. We fight false prophets. But you know, if somebody's out there and they're preaching the true gospel and they just happen to not like Verity Baptist Church or not like my friends or not like our stand or our position or they don't like some sort of position we take on the reprobates or the preacher of rapture or whatever, you say, what's your position? My position is this. Anytime somebody preaches the true gospel, we rejoice. You know what? If the old IFP got mad at us, and they said, you know what, I'm sick and tired of these young guys. Let's, let's uh, spark a soul-winning revival. And, and, and let's just get as many soul-winners in the old IFB out there. Let's show these young bucks how to get it done. And, and let's say they went out and they preached the gospel. And it was all based off competition just to show us what's what. You say, how would you respond? I would respond, praise the Lord. I would rejoice and therein rejoice. Why? Because when the gospel is preached. Paul says, if I'm their motivation and, I'm, and they're doing it for wrong motivation, he said, what then? So what? Notwithstanding every way, where in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice, and yea, and will rejoice. Paul, are you crazy? Are you faking? Or are you on to something? And Paul would say, I'm happy. I'm joyful. I can rejoice. But what about all these problems and these, your position and your opposition? Paul would say, when my problems further the passion of God, then I can rejoice. And by the way, that's the secret of every Bible character who ever rejoiced through adversity. That's why Joseph could stand before his brothers groveling at his feet. After they had lied about him, sold him into slavery. After he'd been lied about in Potiphar's house, thrown into prison. After all of that, he could maintain a good attitude, a happy attitude. And at the end of the whole thing, he said, He thought to do evil against me, but God meant it for good. You say, why could Joseph do that? Here's why Joseph could do that. Because Joseph understood that the things which have happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. That's why Esther, we just did a study on Esther. That's why Esther could lose her parents, be raised by an older cousin, be taken into the custody of a wicked king, be at best forced to be a prisoner wife, and at worst be forced to be a prisoner concubine. And Mordecai could look at Esther and say, Esther, you were brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. And Esther could rejoice. You say, why? Because she understood that the things that have fallen unto me, he said, the, thing, the things that have happened up to, unto me have fallen ra- rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Let me ask you about your prison. Let me ask you about your position you feel incarcerated in or your opposition. Is it possible that it's an opportunity? That God has given you an opportunity. And when you see your problems as an opportunity, you can rejoice. In prison, while people are talking bad about you, in the midst of a prison position and personal opposition, you can rejoice. When your perspective's right, when you realize that your problems are an opportunity, we, like Paul, can rejoice. Let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the Apostle Paul. Thank you for the book of Philippians. Lord, my goal is not to minimize what anybody's going through. I understand that sometimes people go through very difficult things in life. But Lord, help us to just see Paul's perspective. That it may be, that it just may be, that our problem is actually an opportunity. 
for the furtherance of the gospel. And when that's true, like the Apostle Paul, we can rejoice. Help us, Lord, to be Christians who find joy and who rejoice in the midst of our troubles. In the matchless name of Christ, we pray. Amen. We're going to have Brother Matt come up and lead us in a final song. We have a baptism this morning, so we'll go ahead and prepare for baptism as we sing the last song.